Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. Say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Hi, I'm Andrew Wallace, and welcome to the We've Got a Problem podcast, where we explore inspiring stories of struggle, success, and solutions to prevalent problems and how our guests have turned problems into opportunities. This week, I'm joined by Rick Magnante, who it would not be an overstatement to say that your life has been baseball for quite some time. Baseball has been a huge part of your life. You played in high school, college, the minor leagues. You were a talent scout for a number of years. You managed minor league teams. Uh, thank you for joining me on the podcast. It's my pleasure, Andrew. I'm happy to be here. Before we get into some of the bigger stuff, I want to talk a little bit about your history and how you got into playing in the minor leagues. So you played in college. Yes. Well, it, it began uh, pretty much right here in Encino, California in 1955. Uh, <laughs> my parents moved from Inglewood, and uh, at that time, Encino Little League opened up. Okay, and all my friends in the neighborhood were going to opening day because at that time in little league you were able to play starting at eight years old. I was seven at the time, so I was too young. So I was emotionally devastated that I was not going to be able to participate in this. <laughs> so that was my first real introduction to some kind of organized league was little league, and at that time to to, to keep things kind of in context. Baseball was the national pastime. It sure. was everything for our country, and it had told its history from the Civil War. So there was a tremendous history, a tremendous uh, popularity, and it did not have to compete with things like the NFL or the NBA or golf or other thing, other sports of, of that time. So everybody loved baseball, and everybody was driven by it. And that's basically when it captured my heart. So you go through, you, you played in high school, mm -hmm. you played in college, mm -hmm. and were you recruited, were you scouted throughout college? Were they trying to get you to leave early to come <laughs> join them? <laughs> no, there were, there, was no, there were no early commitments back then. And, and my story is kind of unique because, again, I, I grew up in the Valley. I went to Notre Dame High School. Not to belabor the point or extend it to too much, but, but when I got there as a uh, entering sophomore, uh, I had to take an algebra class in summer school, which was a, a full year of algebra in a, a six-week period. And unfortunately, I got the I got the measles, and I extended my absentees for like two weeks, which wouldn't allow me to pass the course. So they suggested because I was younger uh, that I could go back and start as a freshman, and that's what happened. I began my high school career. As a freshman, uh, repeating the ninth grade coming out of a public school system, and through my sophomore year, I was elated because I thought, geez, I'm going to get to play four years of high school sports where most kids are only getting to play three, Right. Notre Dame being a four-year high school. And after my sophomore year, there was a little uh, 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 an issue that came up because some opposing coaches in, in, the, uh, in the league, uh, because of the, my football um uh, experience, wanted to know who I was and where I came from. Most kids came from parochial feeder schools. I came from a public school. So they said, well, if he came from a public school, when did he graduate? They got back to the fact that I repeated the, repeated the ninth grade, and they determined that I would only be eligible at Notre Dame through my junior year. Okay. So I was not able to compete my senior year. I missed out on my senior year. But I was recruited by uh, Stanford University, USC, UCSB, which was University of California, Santa Barbara at the time. 
And my best viable option was that to go to Santa Barbara. And I was given a scholarship there, even though I didn't get to play my se- my senior year in high school. So I was very fortunate that I was able to transition academically and athletic athletically to the college level. And after three years at UCSB, I was drafted in the 13th round by the Cleveland Indians, giving a a modest bonus of $6,000, and I began a very unauspicious, very disappointing <laughs> minor league career that listed, lasted almost two years. So okay. that's pretty much what was my road to professional baseball. Right. You spent some time after that in, in uh, what what would I say, interloping pursuits. Some- <laughs> That'd be true. <laughs> after... after uh, uh, discontinuing your career in in the minor leagues. We would call that a release, also known as a pink slip. (laughs) Thank you very much. Good luck to you. So after you get released, you move off and you sold insurance for a period of time. Correct. Uh, And uh, after a a little bit in that or or quite a period in that, you got back into baseball. (laughs) Correct. I have tremendous passion for it. Yeah. I was was married at at a very young age and had a, a child very early on in the marriage and I needed a job, so I found my way to the insurance industry. And I stayed in that business for 10 years. And then uh, I was approached by a dear friend of mine, a high school teammate, lifelong friend, and a college teammate as well, and to ask if I would be available a couple of afternoons a week to help with what they called back then a, a winter league uh, professional team. The Milwaukee Brewers had a, a lot of Southern California minor league players in their system at the time. So they wanted to keep them in shape during the off season. Right. So they created a team of pro players and we would play uh, all the four-year schools, all the junior colleges to keep these guys sharp prior to spring training. So I went into it uh, as kind of an, an avocation, as a help to my friend to run the teams because he had to also scout the area in Southern California for the January at that time, and June drafts, amateur drafts, and I was bitten uh, again by the bug. And I thought, geez, how great would it be to find my way back into the game, albeit not as a player, but as maybe a field guy, manager, coach, and or scout. And that opportunity presented itself in 1981, and I decided that I was going to step away from the private sector and insurance and see if I could make my way in baseball Unfortunately, the loss of income was substantial and created a, a major kind of financial challenge as as well as a career challenge, too. When you step away from the game and you've never really done much in it, you didn't get to the big leagues, right. they're not calling your name to be the guy. <laughs> so I knew that there was going to be risk involved, but I also realized that uh, this would be my path, this would be... Uh, my story, and this would be my, my my vocation as I move forward. And fortunately, it worked out. It worked out absolutely. So you spent many years after that, so 1981 to basically now, mm-hmm. working as a scout and a manager. Kind of simultaneously, you went between you would you would manage in the in the short season, mm-hmm. things like that. That's correct. You have firsthand experience watching the minor league players and what it's like both to have been a minor league player and now having for many years uh, managed minor league teams to to see what that life is like and how major league baseball treats minor league players there's been a lot of kind of conversation in the media lately about how minor leaguers 
in a sense, have a, a very difficult road ahead of them, no matter what they do. Can you talk to me about what it's like in the minor leagues for 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 a typical player, let's say, who comes in there trying to hopefully get his shot at playing in the majors? Sure, sure. It, it's an arduous, grueling, demanding challenge. The experience pretty much is the same for all the players, regardless of what the signing bonus is. Okay. You might get preferential treatment if you're a first rounder versus being a 21st rounder, but both of us, both of those two players still have to go take that same road and have that same experience in in in, in the low A classifications moving up through double A, triple A and ultimately to the big leagues. And and I think it really takes a, a tremendous sacrifice and a lot of passion to continue to keep your so to speak, your eye on the ball and your goal in terms of how you're going to get there and what it's going to take. There's no glory. Uh, there, there, there's no accolades. There, there's, there's no real mm, glitz to the minor leagues. It, it, it's a difficult, a difficult schedule. And you begin in spring training in February, and you go through the first or second week of September. And at that point in time, you are somewhat of a vagabond. You're hoping maybe when the season begins, you'll have a successful year at the classification that they put you in. On the other hand, uh, you're hoping maybe you don't have to stay at that classification for the whole year. Maybe your performance would allow you to move forward. The money, the travel, the, the diet, the stress, the pressure, all those things for young men between the ages of 18 and 22 years old, no matter what their dreams are, they can never anticipate what that really, that experience is going to be. Right. What the day-to-day is going to be like once they're, once they're in it. Exactly. You're in that grind. And, you know, baseball is so unique because there's 162 games in a big league season. In a minor league, full season minor league schedule, there's 140 games. And you don't have the luxury of staying in five-star hotels in the minor leagues, nor do you have an opportunity to, to travel by jet and, and basically be handled pretty much as a celebrity by the team in terms of getting you to where you want to go, sure. providing you the income to, to take away the financial pressures that a lot of these young players feel, whether they be single or married with children. So it's it's much more difficult in the minor leagues. I, I, I hearken back to my first year in Reno, Nevada, in the California League in 1969, and my per diem on the road was three dollars and fifty cents. <laughs> well, that didn't even cover three three meals at McDonald's. Right. So immediately you're in your pocket, and you're renting an apartment, but really you can't sign a lease because you don't know how long you'll be there. You may be living with three or four other players. People come and go. It's it's a very, very unsettling uh, experience until you get to the ballpark. Right. And now you're in an environment where you're feeling comfortable and this is what you want to do. The game begins and that's where the joy and the experience comes from and hopefully the, the matriculation and the ability to move forward. But it is—it's a very, very difficult and demanding, you know, endeavor. And in addition to that, you at that time in '69, I was making six hundred dollars a month. That was before taxes. Right. And today, as I when I started managing in the minor leagues with the Oakland A's, or excuse me, the Detroit Tigers, in 1987, I think the initial pay for a first-year player had risen to $650. So over that period of time, 
the finances, uh, the willingness of ownership to make a greater financial contribution to their players in hopes that to build a better environment for them to succeed in was really not advanced. Right. It was a situation where you were chattel, you were owned, you're controlled for six years. Uh, you can't choose to go to another team or demand a trade, any of those things. And so you're kind of caught. You're right. caught in, a, in, in, in an environment you, you chose to be in. But until you get in, you're really not aware of how the rules really work and how they're going to impact your future. Right. The game is different when you're in college and when you're on the field in Stockton. Part of the interesting thing for me is – how emotionally mature you would have to be at age 18 to make that choice that this is the life that I'm going to be leading for a period of time. I, I don't think I would have been in uh, you know, coming out of high school. I don't think I would have had the clarity of mind to really understand what I was agreeing to when I signed up to, to go into this. What, what it did you know, again, eating, going into my pocket because I can't actually afford on the per diem to, to eat at McDonald's what the nutrition's like, all that stuff. Okay, you get to the ballpark, they've got something there for you. But what do you, you know, you're living with four guys, like you say. Tomato soup, crackers, and a PB&J is what you're going to get at the clubhouse in in, in the 60s and 70s. (laughs) The other thing is about baseball, what makes it unique, nobody really goes from high school or college directly to the big leagues, which is different in the NFL and the NBA. You get your bonus money in the NBA and the NFL, and you are immediately in the show. Sure. But because baseball is such a multi-skilled uh, sport that requires you to do many things, uh, I, I also I try to make the comparison. I'm, I'm a defensive tackle. I'm a first-rounder in the NFL. I'm a football player, but really I don't throw the football. I don't catch the football. I don't run with the football. Right. In baseball, it's much different. Everybody goes into the field. Everybody has to catch the ball, throw the ball, hit the ball. So there's many more skills that need to be developed, and that minor league uh, apprenticeship is vital to getting you ready to be that big league player that one day you hope you will be. So baseball is a little bit more difficult, and it and if you're geared to immediate gratification, as many of the younger generations are today, that NBA, that NFL uh, dream might be a little bit more appealing because you're not going to go through a tough apprenticeship in the Texas League or the South Atlantic League and the bus rides. I mean, the bus rides in back then in the day were it was a yellow school bus. There was no air conditioning. <laughs> there were no reclining seats, you know. They weren't playing a movie like they're doing now. So, it yeah, there were no movies. Yeah, yeah. There, there were no laptops. There were no beats. There was none of that. It was just your team you're sleeping, you're eating on the bus, you're playing cards, and you get to the town and you play your three games, you get back on the yellow bus, and here we go again. So, you know, at the time, as a young person, to answer your question, yes, it's very difficult for an 8, 17, 18-year-old player to transition into professional baseball where the demands are so uh, heavy every day and the expectations are so high that you come out into that game thinking, I am all state, I'm I'm all American, I'm very special. And then you find out 
the 24 guys on your team are just as special and as just as good as you. And now the playing field is a little bit more level. And now you have to realize, you know, can I push the bar higher? Can I excel? Can I, can I reach the goal? And for a young player, emotionally being away from home, having no money, you know, and questioning your ability, it all factors into the mental side of it and how strong you are to overcome all that adversity and still reach your goal. Right. Absolutely. Now, what do you think the possible solutions are, ways to to alter that game, the lifestyle, the the system to make it more compatible for one actual player advancement, as well as taking a, a, an interest or care for the players themselves. Yeah, it's about development. And I think it all begins with ownership and the culture of how we are going to manage this resource of 125 to 150 minor league players that we've invested millions of dollars in right. to give them the best opportunity to succeed. Now, there's been lip service given over the past half a dozen years to the fact that we have to improve travel for the minor leaguers, okay? Okay. Mm-hmm. We have to improve housing. Many minor major league organizations have taken upon themselves to provide the housing for the minor leaguer rather than leave it to him to find an apartment or a host family to live with, things of that nature. More money invested than in, in the player, not playing, paying him simply for the season, which begins in April and ends in September, but paying him a calendar year because he is an employee of that organization. Right. And how many more jobs can you take between September and April that that you're going to what what can you get that pays any kind of decent wage that's temporary? Well, it's a, it's a great question and I would say today what most young minor league players are doing because there's such an emphasis now on personal training in all the sports, be it golf, sure. basketball, football for the young amateur player that the minor league players today in that offseason, they give lessons to younger people or they work in an academy. But again, you're taking away from what you should be doing. You're also being required to stay in shape, eat properly, get to the gym, and yet you're not being compensated for those things from your employer. Right. So to answer your question briefly, ownership is going to have to take a much greater responsibility in creating a, a, a more favorable, conducive environment for the young player to succeed and reach his potential. The prodigies, they make it, right. but there's only a handful of those. The rest of them, they have to find their way. So if you can, as an employer, as a major league owner, or as an industry, as MLB, if you can create standards that more align themselves with what people do to become successful in their careers because this is a career for most young boys for sure they, they don't they're not looking at this as a job this is uh, you know this is a life's work I've been playing since t-ball since I'm five years old I've put 15 16 years into this now I get my shot and ownership is treating me as a number or as an asset rather than as a person who they too have created a market value for and have put money into, but allow the, you know, as they would say in the old days, the cream to rise to the top and the dregs fall to the bottom so that those that atrophy, that's on them. When reality, it's a cooperative effort and ownership should take a greater responsibility financially and in other levels to give your assets the best chance to become potentially what you think they can be. Well, I think that probably applies to almost any business, which is people look at how people handle employees 
and and whether they look at them as again a number, an asset, a uh, a cog in the machine, taking that attitude versus investing in your people and trying to encourage them to do their best, right? You want to put the right person in the right job. You want to train them appropriately. You want to equip them with the skills, the tools, everything to be successful. And you've already invested that money in them. I once heard a, a guy named George Gillette, who uh, I, I met several years ago, and he said he'd done a lot of different things. And at one point, he worked for American Motors in the factory as a quality checker. And he said, I've got to be clear, the only excuse for a union is mismanagement. He said at American Motors, he said, one of the things that brought that company down was the acrimonious relationship between the line workers and management. The guys would go along and change the inspection tags on the engines from, you know, green tag was good to go, yellow needed rework, red flawed block, gotta gotta go. And the guys would change the tags and flip them over and they had no way once they were <laughs> off the line of knowing who's, which one was, was actually good and, and not. And AMC would deliver the car. If management had taken an interest in, in encouraging, growing, developing their, their workers appropriately, and it might have helped. Something else I wanted to talk to you about, because we're, uh, we've just passed Jackie Robinson Day and uh, 75th anniversary of uh, Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier in baseball. I wanted to talk to you about diversity in Major League Baseball. I know it's been kind of top of your mind. We talked a little bit about it uh, off camera, so to speak. A few statistics, 6.9% of the players in Major League Baseball are black, one of the smallest percentages of African-Americans in the sport since baseball was fully integrated in 1959. 11 teams have one or zero black players, and 18 of the 30 teams have two or fewer black players. 28.5% of Major League Baseball is comprised of Latino players. Now, with only one black GM or head of baseball operations, um, two black managers, and say, what, 66 African-Americans among the 975 players on opening day rosters and injured lists, Major League Baseball clearly has a uh, diversity problem specifically related to blacks or African-Americans. What what do you think is going on there? A few things we 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 talked about a little bit earlier. So when you get a a talented athlete, a black talented athlete who can play cornerback on the football team and play center field on the baseball team, and it becomes a situation where how can I get those dollars? How can I grab that brass ring as quickly as I possibly can? Well, you're trying to optimize as anybody is, right? right. You got to have a competitive offer here, right? So when when the NFL comes calling, you know, it was interesting. I'll just give you an example. In, in, in 2019, I believe it was, the Oakland A's drafted Kyler Murray. He was a two-way college player, outfielder and, and a quarterback. And the A's took Kyler Murray in the first round, and they gave him, I believe, $4.7 million signing bonus. But he had a contingency. He said, I, ha- I have a year of eligibility remaining at Oklahoma to play quarterback. Right. And I and I want to be able to do that. The A's were able to accommodate him. He missed his first year of professional baseball, being drafted, then going to rookie league or low class A immediately. And he went back and he played his senior year at at, at Oklahoma. And unbeknownst to the A's, he was a lot better football player than he was a baseball player because <laughs> he won the Heisman Trophy. Okay, and the Arizona Cardinals drafted him and gave him a lot more money, so he opted out of his bonus. He had to give a majority of the bonus back because he did not play. Right. But again, the choice was, even regardless of the 
the, the risk of, of, of physical injury in a shortened career that weighs heavily on every NFL player's mind, a short-lived career versus maybe a 12- to 15-year career in Major League Baseball. He wanted the money now and an opportunity to be in the show immediately and right. decided that I would choose football over baseball. I think that's a little bit of a microcosm of why where and you see a lot of black athletes dominating in not only in numbers but in skills situations basketball and football. I mean of course we're when when you have a talented athlete it's unlikely they're going to only be talented in one single sport. Now they might be a better fit for one versus another, but a multi-sport athlete isn't far out of the out of the question especially for somebody who's athletic. So there is a, a, at least as I take it, a bit of a competition issue where there's an issue that baseball has not been competitive in recruiting uh, athletes who have choices, right? They're not making a competitive offer of sorts uh, for how much time you've got to invest in in us before you'll be in the in the big leagues, Correct. before you'll be out front. And even perhaps on the on the money side, right? Somebody who's a, a hey, it's a really good football player, just as well. And actually, it's more lucrative and and a better choice for him, at least as he perceives it, to Correct. to give that bonus money back and actually take another take another offer. I struggle a little bit with the idea of when when you say that there are, what are six point eight percent of of players in major league major league baseball are black. The 2020 census showed that black or African-American was about 12.1% of the U.S. population at large. So just by that number, we're, we're, we're at least we're half of what it should be if it were a representative sample. Correct. Now, of course, we're tremendously overweight in Major League Baseball or in baseball in general in Latino players. Correct. Where Latinos make up, Hispanic or Latino makes up 18.7% of the 2020 census. And we're at, what did I say, 28.5% of Major League Baseball as Latino players. Right. How do you process that? I mean, is is it that baseball is more popular in some of the countries where these people are coming from, Dominican Republic, things like that? Or is it that baseball is now appealing more to a Latino audience and there more more young uh, Latino children are, are focusing on being great baseball players. How do you? Well, I I, I I think it, it everything I think in life to some degree comes down to dollars, and I think the abundance or greater percentage of Dominicans in the game than there might be in the census is because of the fact that these players are coming to some degree from almost what you might call third world countries. And, and education is not a choice right. coming out of a household at 15 or 16 years old. There is only one choice. In America, there are many choices for minorities. It could be athletics, it can be education, it could be the private sector, it could be many things. But if you're a young Dominican player uh, in a family of nine, uh, t- two parents and seven siblings, and you're living on a dirt floor house and you have no education, and and the only real option is to play the game of baseball, then that is going to be your avenue. So you Absolutely. have many more players focused on that route because of a financial opportunity and a love for the game right. and the innate ability to, to be very good players. Right. So you're, you've got three things, I think, that are operative there that you that are not 
in America is because there's greater rights, greater opportunities, uh, greater privileges in, in America than there might be in than in, 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 in the Dominican Republic or, or Venezuela or Colombia or Nicaragua or some of these countries. So it's a way out completely. It's a, it's an opportunity. You're an American. I, I'm playing in the big leagues, but everything else in society is the same. I'm a Dominican. My whole life is changing. When I get off the island and I come to America, most of the players that do not make it Dominican and Latin players don't go back to the Dominican. Right. They find a way to stay in the States where there is greater opportunity for them. And I think that reflects why you're seeing that the majority, a greater majority of Latin players in the big leagues than it may be American blacks. One of the other things and uh, that I really wanted to talk to you about because it's also been in the news is how to make baseball more exciting. Now, <laughs> now I ask this because it, it, there was a lot of stuff. I think during the pandemic, people were saying, well, you know, the numbers are down, but baseball was already struggling to draw an audience or starting to struggle to draw an audience. In 2019, the average duration of a game was three hours and 10 minutes compared with about two hours and 45 minutes in 2005, that games have gotten longer. 2019 World Series was under 14 million TV viewers per game, which was the least watched series in five years. And I'm using 2019 because that's the last full year before the pandemic affected everything. You know, we're, we're, regular season attendance in 2019 was 68.5 million people, a 14% decline from the uh, from the peak, which was 79.5 million in, in 2007. <laughs> I suppose, and not to liken this to Hollywood, but it's a little bit like how the Academy Awards are trying to to attract a, a larger and larger audience, trying to keep people interested. And we're watching, at least in Hollywood, people are watching the Academy Awards just uh, crater in, in viewership. And of course, baseball has nothing like that happening. We're still getting huge audiences by gross numbers, but in contrast to a few years ago and, and how the game has changed, what do you think we need to do to to turn the path around. There's a lot of opinions as to what, why they, they feel the need to speed the game up. Uh, some point to a younger audience that wants things to be, uh, again, uh, ready and available and quick and moving mm-hmm. on, don't want to stay too long. I think the, the fact that baseball is also on television, which brings in sponsorship and advertising, instant replays, game review plays, things of this nature that slow down the pace of the game because it's being broadcast and advertisers are a part of it. And in some ways, in my humble opinion, they're taking the integrity of the game away. I wouldn't be surprised in the future, let's call it 50 years down the road, where baseball went from our national pastime to now the fourth most popular sport behind the NFL, the NBA, college football, and now baseball, where it becomes a little bit more of a boutique business where instead of hoping to get forty-five to 50,000 people in the stands, you're hoping to get fifteen to 20,000 people in the stands. Your major players are not making twenty-five to $30 million a year. Maybe they're making 6 to $7 million a year. And the game, as it was intended to be played for a long time, is still intact pretty much in its original form without enlarging the bases right. in extra innings, putting a runner at second base putting so they could finish, right. finish the game quickly. 
The beauty about baseball is it's the only game that there is no clock. Right. Okay, so now to implement a clock seems almost heretical. So now you're going to put the, the pitch clock in, and, 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 and you're going to make the bases bigger, and you're going to, with the analytics, make sure that um, there are a defensive schematic for every hitter so that you're going to take away any advantage that he has. And the other side of that is the analytics side that's come into play that's determined that an out is an equal out no matter how it's made and how it works right. in the course of the game. And that really what's exciting is the ball going over the fence right? and how hard it's being thrown. So I think 50% or more of the outs recorded are, are strikeouts. Right. The ball is not being put in play. Plays are not being made. The hit and run, the stolen base, the sacrifice bunt is disdained. All these things that basically made the game up, the strategy of the game, how you play it, how you score a run, has changed. And that basically kind of changed with McGuire and Sosha when they both went for that home run crowd. Right. Well, that's that's kind of what I wondered is, has this focus on home runs that you know, now we're going for, it's it's about the home runs. That's what we think will be most exciting, right? They're trying to gamify the the broadcast ownership wants you know go for home runs go for go for big things but also they've started to fo- fold in this this practice of statistics and odds yeah it 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 it's it's very different and it, 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 the same thing with pitching the fastball which was always the first and major pitch that a young pitcher would develop and everything else worked off that pitch to change speed and location upset hitters timing has now become the thunderbolt. Right. Every young player thinks if I can throw the ball 92 to 94 miles an hour, <laughs> I will get drafted. Right. But the problem is, is that it's still called pitching. It is an art form. It's not just pure velocity. And if you keep throwing fastballs in the center part of the plate, whether you throw them 85 or 105, big league hitters hit them. Right. So, so it's again, it's it's a strikeout or the home run. And the, the, the nuances, the layered parts of the game that used to make it intriguing that kept the fans enamored where you put four hits together and scored two runs and stole a base and sacrificed a man home, it made an exciting inning. Now it's three strikeouts, a home run, and it's over. Right. And we do that again and, and again, again and again. And if you can't steal a base at a 75 to 80% success ratio – the analytics say you don't do it, but they don't understand that the subtlety of the game that when you have a guy like Lou Brock or or Ricky Henderson or Maury Wills at first base hoping to get into scoring position, it plays in the pitcher's mentality and strategy. Right. If I'm a pitcher and no, nobody's running because they say it doesn't work then I don't have to deal with that distraction right. and maybe make a mistake to the hitter and give him a good pitch, which he doubles off the wall, and we score a run, and it becomes an exciting game. So it, it's there's the generations are changing. And again, I, I don't know what it will ultimately be. Uh, and I think change is hard for anybody to accept in society, especially right. in a game as traditional as baseball, and this is how we've done it, and this is how we will continue to do it. And now you have some people coming in and saying, analytics plays. And I believe analytics does play. But it is not It's not the it's not trunk the of the tree. Right. Yeah. It's just a large limb that supports the structure, 
and allows you to use it as a resource to make a better choice in a given situation. But if you fall in love with any side of the polarity, you know that that's extreme and it's not going to play out over the long haul. Right, right. Well, and in fact, if you you took the analytics into account and then made your own choice of what you were going to do and what you're going to go with, you'd probably surprise some people. I guess I'm what I'm getting at is if you if you swing all the way in one direction you end up missing out on a whole bunch of stuff that would both make the game more fun to watch and also more fun to play. I, I could not agree more. And it's interesting that we we're talking about this a little bit about strategy in reading the the paper this morning I noticed that uh the Angels future Hall of Fame manager Joe Madden, who I admire tremendously, and I think he's one of the best in the game, elected last night to walk Corey Seager, ex-Dodger, now Texas Ranger, with the bases loaded and the Angels down by two runs because he was afraid that Corey might hit a grand slam home run (laughs) and really create a greater deficit. Right. He walked in a run. Now they're down 4-2. The Rangers ended up throwing, I think, two or three more runs in that inning, but somehow the Angels were able to win the game because they out-hit them. Only three people, I think, they reference in modern history, Reggie Jackson, Babe Ruth, and Corey Seager have been walked with the bases loaded. (laughs) So here you're going really outside-the-box stuff. I don't know that that was analytically driven. According to the manager, he said, I walked out and told my pitcher, who's a young guy, maybe we should walk him. And the young pitcher said, who am I to argue with Joe Madden? Right. So we did. And it didn't work out at the moment, but we found out over the next four innings that we were able to score enough runs and we won the game. But it is a controversy today. I mean, People just don't do that. Right. And I think analytics sometimes has looked at it like that as well. Like, why are we doing this? Why are we not utilizing a stolen base or a sacrifice butt? Right. But the, the, the mathematical people who develop these axioms uh, and, and, the, and these formulas, they come from a statistical background and a lot of them just haven't ever really stepped into the box well, I think or that, towed the rubber to really understand what it means to be in the moment as an athlete competing and tell, having somebody tell you analytically, you know, I, I, this, this is a better way to go. When I know if I just throw the fastball right here, I get this guy out. But you're telling me, no, no, I don't. That's right. not the pitch to go with. Well, that's what, 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 struggle, what I struggle with in that is treating a statistic as a mandate uh, that if you if you say statistics say you're more likely to have this outcome than that one so you shouldn't do it but that takes the judgment call out of in this situation I know that that's the right thing to do or I'm going to take a I'm taking a I'm going to take a chance here. I'm going to th- because it doesn't mean that it can never happen. Correct. It just means it's more likely that the opposite might happen. But hey, you might have a choice to to do it. Now's the time to do it. Uh, you know, sacrifice to go do what you can. Let's do it. Like I don't know. I I, I think I'm preaching to the choir here. My 
I, I agree. I, you know, we all know that if we flip a coin a hundred times, it's going to be heads fifty percent and tails fifty percent. But if we flip it ten times, it might be heads twice and tails eight times. Sure. So the law of large numbers does come into play, and I think sometimes with the analytics, even to date, even though it's been around now for a while, they don't have enough large numbers to really make it. Right. And especially with the shift, the defensive shifts that they've come in to, 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 to apply to, 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 to take the pull field away from either the right or left-handed hitter to make that out uh, seem like it's going to be uh, something more calculable and that will right. work. So I, I think those things are, 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 are difficult sometimes. And when you're in the game and you're in the moment and you're leading that team as a manager and you know who's on the bench, you know who's hot, you know who's cold, you know who argued with their wife, who's not in the right frame of mind today, right. or didn't come in feeling quite as tipsy as, and, and ready to play as they might. That's the human element of the game. Otherwise, you might just play it with avatars. Right. And I don't, that doesn't appeal to me. No, me neither. <laughs> me neither. Well, thank you so much. So I've got a few questions to close this out as sure. we finish up. I ask these questions to everybody. What is the biggest fallacy in your business that it seems like everybody buys into? I think that, you know, when I look at from a scouting standpoint and in uh, evaluating talent, we we go to the tools first, okay? Uh, be it run, throw, hit, field, and power. If those tools are there, then there's a really good chance that this person could be a big league ball player. And sometimes we place a little bit too much emphasis on the tools because in my mind, there's two other categories that come equally into play to determine success at the big league level. And what would be the skill set? The other thing is, is that the intangibles, that intangible bucket, you got to fill that up too. Guys that are committed, guys that are going to work through adversity, guys that are not going to hear the word no, but or hear it and say it means yes to me. So in terms of evaluating, yes, tools are important. You have to throw at 90 to pitch in the big leagues. You have to be able to hit it 400 feet to be a power hitter. But I might be able to throw it 100, but if I can't throw it inside a barn, I can't pitch. Right. So these are, you know, just off the top of my head, that just that that just came to play with me. Yeah. That's what I, I kind of look at that and say, that the tools always don't play. You right. want them, but that doesn't really mean you're going to have a good, pl- necessarily a big leaguer, because he's got tools. But if he doesn't have intangibles and he doesn't have a skill set to play the game and the instincts, then he's probably not going to be a very successful big leaguer. Right. Well, I think it's probably the case in, in a lot of businesses that people sure. analyze people based on metrics and, and things like that, but ignore the holistic picture of, look, I don't want to be in a room with this guy, right? right. That's, the, that's, that's always the thing they talk about in job interviews, pe- trying to pass the 3 a.m. in Japan test, right? You're, <laughs> you're stuck at the airport at 3 a.m. in Japan. Are you going to be, you know, we're not going to talk about work at 3 a.m. Right. Are you going to be somebody that I actually want to be around? And well, so true in the team concept because you're 162 games with 25 guys yeah. day in and day out. If there isn't a, if there isn't a chemistry, if there isn't a camaraderie, if there isn't a sense of we're all in this because we want to be part of something bigger than ourselves, yeah. then you're probably not going to be much of a teammate. So in contrast to that, what do you think the most underrated concept is? Do you think that people overlook? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, it, it, I'll just take it from a, an evaluation standpoint. It's, it's very easy to go to a high school game 
and see a player and look at the tools and grade them out and say they will be major league ready at some point in time at average or above and i i i think the skill set will develop but there's a, a fence between you and the player as an evaluator and all you're doing is making a, a, an assumption based on what you see without understanding who that individual is and it, it you know like like what's behind the screen is mm-hmm. it is it a big leaguer or is it the wizard of oz you know i mean <laughs> i'm not sure what's back there so I, I think it plays back into that again it's like those things and there will be people that say yeah the kid's a great great young player but you know he doesn't have the necessary tools to be the big leaguer there's truth to that argument too but if you don't do a good enough job of assessing the character of a player, the passion, the commitment, uh, and the desire to be successful, uh, there is a lot of players that have a skill set. No other opportunities in life will play the game and be okay, but not very be passionate about what they're doing. Right. It's a financial decision. It's transactional rather than it is from like the heart. Right. For sure. All right, last question. What is the most surprising, unexpected detour your career has taken? I detoured out of the private sector and found my way back into baseball and, and uh, deeply grateful and appreciative of that second chance. I tell players when they come into the minor leagues, I say, you, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. I did get a second chance to make a first impression. And the second time I got a chance, I made the better impression, and it worked out to be a career in baseball. For sure. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Thank you.